Just ahead on Black Issues Forum, school bus drivers and cafeteria workers demand pay and respect. What does the long-awaited state budget have in store? And why is Vice President Kamala Harris slammed for dysfunction despite all the support? Stay with us. Welcome to Black Issues Forum. I'm Deborah Holt Noel. We often hear about how underpaid our teachers are. Well, in recent weeks, another group of workers in public schools have captured public awareness. School bus drivers and cafeteria workers have staged sick outs, leaving hundreds of parents scrambling to get their kids to school and get meals to children in the schools. It's a situation that in Wake County prompted the school board to approve a one-time bonus of nearly $4,000, but is it enough? Here to talk with us about the worker shortage problem in our schools is Councilman-elect Leonardo Williams of Ward 3 in Durham. Congratulations on the recent election, Leonardo. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Deborah. Now, is this a Wake County problem, the shortage of bus drivers, <clears throat> the disgruntled uh, cafeteria workers, and those shortages? Yes, it's a Wake County issue just as well as a Durham County issue and a North Carolina issue as well as a national federal issue. Uh, we are feeling this everywhere. Uh, folks are having to take their children to school uh, and they're going, some are going to school where they're not even having someone to serve them a meal. It's a really big issue that we're dealing with nationwide. And we know that we've got the pandemic that many are blaming for this stress, but are there other stressors that have contributed to this? So as many folks know, I am a former educator, uh, two times teacher of the year. I, education is my background. Uh, we in, that, in the industry of education were stressed well before the pandemic. We were hanging on. The pandemic simply gave uh, many educators or folks in the education industry a moment uh, to reassess themselves and you know, reassess their value. And, and we're feeling the brunt of that now. And we know that as a result of the sick outs, uh, the Board of Education in Wake County decided, let's implement uh, a plan of immediacy. We're going to do some bonuses and try to get folks satisfied in that way. And then there's going to be more to come, a 1% salary supplement. Um, are those the kinds of strategies that are really going to address the issues? You know, uh, I, during 2008, I was a teacher, and that's when our salaries were frozen. But things started, prices continued to rise over the years. Well, educators haven't had a raise in three years. So the budget was just passed, a 5% raise. When you think about it, that's 5% over five years, because the next, the 5% raise is going to be implemented over the next two years. So that's 1% each year. Uh, we're not keeping up with uh, inflation. We're not keeping up with the cost of living. And we're talking about teachers in some capacities and, you know, cafeteria workers, bus drivers. Who else is out there who you would say is underpaid in the system who we really need to address when it comes to pay raises? You know, to educate a whole child, it takes the entire staff. It takes the whole staff um, from our actual certified teachers to teacher assistants, instructional assistants, our classified staff, the folks you see when you walk in the front office. Education as an industry, education as a public, uh, public entity is 
actually one of the main entities that have yet to evolve with society. So, and, and you'll hear us call it a sick out because in North Carolina, we're still a right to work state. So we can't protest. So what, what folks are doing now is they're getting the attention. And some of the strategies of the, uh, the raises or bonuses that are coming now, I believe they're just the beginning. But we're going to have to reassess how we do teaching and learning, and we're going to have to reassess how we, value, how we actually value and, and compensate in this industry. What are your, some, some of your suggestions for um, thinking differently about how we educate and who's involved in that system? So first of all, our educators have to be the leaders in this. They have to also be leaders in society uh, when it comes to teaching and learning rather than just in the classroom. First of all, teachers should feel liberated in the classroom, not feel as though they want to leave the classroom. And we also have to think about how we're going to build our kingdoms. You know, kingdom building is uh, a way that I look at our community and teaching and learning. We have over 600 churches in Durham. We should have over 600 classrooms outside of the school building, 600 community centers, ecosystems. So we have to diversify the learning venue, and we have to expand the folks, our neighbors, our community members who are educating our kids, be more, uh, I guess, together on this, uh, on, this, on this process. So we're going to have to evolve and reform how we educate. And one of the things that I've heard you say is that there's a connection between our uh, economy and our education and public safety. How do you connect all those three things together? Absolutely. So, you know, everyone knows if you're looking at the news in Durham, we're talking about public safety every single day because we have a situation every single night. Uh, but as it's been stated, public safety is a prerequisite to prosperity. Education and economic development are public safety issues. And in order for us to solve the crime epidemic in Durham, we are going to have to engage our kids, not only in our schools, but in our parks and our recreation areas. We have, we're going to have to engage them earlier. We are, we're going to have to work with small businesses to ensure that they are, uh, we are creating citywide apprenticeship programs and internship programs. Uh, right now, we have about a capacity of 400 summer jobs for youth. We have thousands of businesses in Durham that are ready to bring in youth. Uh, we have universities that can bring them into life sciences and other skill set areas that are specific to their interests. But we do have to be more expansive as a city. And the city can also have a role in uh, how we educate our kids, not just the county. So I'm looking at how we can be more, uh, do this more in a collective. Certainly. And Going back to the situation with the school bus drivers and the cafeteria workers and the demand for pay, uh, do you have any idea what they're being paid? And are, what are your thoughts about their demands? Are they asking for too much? They're part-time workers. Um, so, you know, the system is stressed. What, what do you think about e their e request? Yeah, so part-time is the issue. Uh, it's... it's it's part-time. We can be more creative. Uh, what's going to happen is history is going to sort of repeat itself. Uh, and I'm going to date myself here, but when I was in high school, the high school seniors drove the school bus. I'm not suggesting that we go back to that, but I know for a long time, even recent, cafeteria workers were also bus drivers. We were cross-utilizing our staff to ensure they had the amount of hours uh, and uh, could, you know, increase their pay. But Many bus drivers, when I was in the school system, was getting eight seventy-five an hour. In this day and age, you cannot live on that. We have folks that are right under middle class that cannot afford a home. We have people in middle class that can't afford a home in Durham. 
So now we have an entire public entity of folks working in a, in a, uh, in a space where they have no chance of even owning a home. And that is a problem. So we need to pay more. We have to get more creative in how our tax structure, structure is in North Carolina to, uh, to allow us to be able to compensate educators more. Councilman-elect Leonardo Williams, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. After two and a half years, North Carolina has a state budget approved by the General Assembly and signed by the governor. The $29.5 billion measure will no doubt be welcomed by all 100 counties as our state has been operating without an approved budget for more than two and a half years. Of course, there were compromises made on both sides, so let's talk about the good, bad, and the ugly. I'd like to welcome Lemicia Whittington of Advance Carolina and Harold Eustish of the Scythe County GOP. So pleased that you were able to join us. Let me open up with you, Lamisha. Many are breathing a sigh of relief now, and it's about time. I mean, we just finished talking uh, in the previous segment about the stress on the public education workers and wanted to know what do you think that this budget means for education in our state, especially some of the things that the Democrats were pushing for? So we're very excited that we finally have a state budget, right? We've, we've been stating this for two to three years. We need a state budget. We need a state budget. Uh, so, you know, we are appreciative for the compromises, the discussions across the aisles. Um, and some of those uh, positive provisions, bipartisan provisions, has included over the course of the next few years uh, funding to improve infrastructure needs of school buildings. When we talk about education, it includes sewage systems, waterway overhauls. So we hope that means that remediation for mold and mildew in schools can be taken care of, that lead pipes, right, PFAS in the pipes can actually be remediated so our children and staff and teachers have clean water. Uh, these are some of the positive provisions. But what we're also looking at is that the state budget still doesn't meet the court order and required $1.7 billion for schools. It's actually short around seven to $900 million. So while there is funding for education and it's needed funding, it's still the bare minimum. Uh, that's kind of some of the critique that we've heard from staff and teachers and students alike. And so even though teachers are receiving a 5.0% increase, like raise increase, the issue is the inflation is 5.9%. So what does that mean? It means that we're giving teachers funding, but we're behind by three or four plus years of giving them this amount. That means that they're going to continue to be in a deficit. The pay raises that other staff will receive, like cafeteria workers, our bus drivers, it's said that it'll be $15 minimum per hour, but that still won't take effect for the next two years, which means increasing deficit over time because we're still in a pandemic and we've been in pandemic before because, again, this is the first state budget we've passed in years. So those are some things for education. Harold, what, do you, what would you share um, about the gains for education in terms of what the conservatives may have been interested in? I think there's a lot in this in the state budget that all residents in North Carolina can be proud of. And, you know, particularly, I think it's great for the, the fact that it's bipartisan and the fact that um, I think our Republican legislature in writing this did a good job. This, one of the first things is that uh, this budget really focuses on charter schools and, and helps um, uplift charter schools and, and give them the money that they need um, through this pandemic to, to open, um, to keep their students solvent, to keep their students achieving. There's, there's uh, studies to show that, that students at ch charter schools are doing really well. Um, this budget also expands um, free and reduced lunch. So 
uh, families uh, families of four making under $85,000 a year um, will be eligible for free and reduced lunch. That's most North Carolinians. Um, so that that is a really a huge deal for a lot of families not having to worry about lunch at all for, for, the, for the majority of families in North Carolina. This, this bill also gives, uh, I think, $150 million or so or even more to Fayetteville State University. Um, one of our great HBCUs. And I think it, it's great to see that that university is going to get that kind of money that it needs and really um, in that region be sort of a, uh, be a, a place that, that students can go get a great education. So there's a lot in this budget to be proud of. Um, I know that over the last few years with COVID, it's, it's, you know, a lot of students have left public schools and this, and this budget tries to keep um, not punished public schools for students leaving, but also helps um, give vouchers to, to students that want to go to private school. So there's a lot, there's a lot there. Well, the, the uh, charter school movement, of course, we know that there's um, resistance to that in terms of just, as you said, the, uh, the accusation that it takes uh, funding away from the public schools because that, those dollars do follow the child, but when parents are not getting what they want out of the public school system, they feel like the charter school is indeed an alternative. Um, Lemisha, about you know that funding for charter schools and trying to uh, make that an alternative or an option for uh, for parents who are not really satisfied with the public school system, um, I would say that you know this could be seen certainly as a benefit. The increase mm -hmm. to funding for charter schools. Absolutely. Um, as Harold mentioned, there are uh, absolutely positive uh, increases that is built within this budget. But what we're looking at is North Carolina has a $6.5 billion surplus due to uh, taxes, our hard, you know, hardworking essential workers every single day. That has contributed $6.5 billion. So when we're talking about choosing between the options that all families deserve, we actually don't have to choose. That's part of the issue. Uh, this state budget has actually uh, cut corporate taxes and will completely cut corporate taxes by 2030. That means that low-income communities and moderate-income communities will be paying more taxes than multi-million dollar, multi-billion dollar corporations. So we're talking about increased hardship and burden for communities who, again, we talk about choice, but the communities that do choose to access public schools, we have $6.5 billion that can support public schools, that can meet the $1.7 billion court mandate to actually fulfill that, Leandro, to make sure every child is supported and every family is supported no matter the choice. And that's the point. Why are we pitting community against community when we have the money to support all communities? Well, let's hope that, that that funding actually comes through. It's been mandated, and, and we'll see what happens next. But another critical area is health care. And uh, let me open with you, uh, Harold. Once again, Medicaid expansion was sacrificed in order to make headway for education funding. Uh, do you think that it was the governor's willingness to kind of compromise on this in some of those closed-door sessions that, that helped us to actually get to an approved or agreed-upon state budget? I, I do. I think that um, the Speaker of the House and the governor and everybody involved in this had to make some sacrifices and, and certainly had to make some sacrifices when it come to, came to Medicaid expansion from the Republican side. Um, the issue with Medicaid expansion is that Medicaid already in North Carolina is for, you know, our, our most needy um, residents of our state, people that are disabled, the, the poorest that we have. And expanding Medicaid is really 
from our perspective is about um, uh, the road to universal health care. I mean, it, it's really saying that let's expand this so that almost everyone qualifies for Medicaid. And then and then what do we have? Um, we have uh, what we call government run health care, essentially. And, and that's that's not the road we want to go down. Um, so I do think I do think even with that being out of the bill, there was the compromise of having a committee. Um, next year to look into Medicaid expansion, which I think um, it, it is, if done right, can you know really be beneficial to the state and really looking at what are the issues going to are going to be overall. So, I, you know, I do think there's some compromise there, but I'm glad it got done. I, I, I think that a lot of people are glad it got done. L.A., what would you say about the the compromise and, you know, kind of tabling in a way this conversation about Medicaid expansion? So as advocates and community, the issue of healthcare expansion is critical to, for us, for our community. So over half a million North Carolinians could actually benefit from access to healthcare, and that is Medicaid expansion. When we're talking about, you know, the impact on rural communities, we're talking about health insecurities. We're talking about increased uh, distances to actual hospitals. And the fact of the matter is 30% of North Carolina's rural hospitals are vulnerable for closing due to financial hardships. So not only is it a hardship on the least of these in our community that already don't have healthcare access or coverage, that already don't have transportation in rural and certain urban areas, because again, lack of public transportation in rural areas to get to hospitals, now there are no hospitals. That's the threat, right? And that's because of the decrease in funding and lack of funding that again, this state budget didn't cover. So it's also making sure that there are hospitals in place for individuals individuals and healthcare options for those individuals to access that hospital in the event that hospital survives, again, financial hardship and barriers. And here's the thing, North Carolina is behind. 39 other states chose to expand Medicaid, 39. And so at this point to table and again, Pitting community against community is unacceptable. It's always taking away, let's look at the $6.5 billion. We don't have to choose between education and health. It's the same folks, the same minimum wage workers that we're talking about that will eventually receive the $15 an hour increase are the same communities who don't have that health care insurance coverage. So it's choosing to still place now that new right minimum wage to health care. Well, it'll be interesting to see how things change with an approved budget and funding to actually address some of these issues. Looking on to the national stage, Vice President Kamala Harris is drawing unwanted attention following reports that her office and operations are dysfunctional. Harold, we have seen reports and heard rumors ever since she took office. How much of this is an attempt to make the administration look weak? And uh, which observations can the public really rely on as fact? I think there have been absolutely credible uh, observations and reports that her office is dysfunctional. Um, she's had, she just had her communications director leave. She's had several um, uh, reports of serious uh, issues in her staff where, where folks have wanted to leave. And, it, and, and, and even internally, people have said it comes from the top down. I think what's happened in this country and what people have seen and the reason that the vice president has the low approval rating she has is because of her uh, sort of ineptitude to, in order to really handle her staff and to handle the greater issues um, that uh, this country faces, whether it be at the border or other issues. I mean, I know that there are those in, in her party that are going to say, well, you know, if she's attacked, it's about her, it's about her gender, it's about her skin color. But we see, we, we've seen people like um, 
like like other politicians that are black or maybe Republican that don't get that kind of don't get to say it's because I'm black or because I'm a woman that I'm attacked. It's because you're a politician. And it's because, you know, that that's that's what happens in politics. You get attacked. Um, and so she she deserves it just like anybody else. Well, Lamisha, as far as deserving this attack, you know, so often it just seems as though uh, women of color are in these positions of leadership and the attacks come. And certainly, uh, just because you're a woman of color uh, doesn't mean that you're doing your job, you know, extremely well. But how much of the criticism is about her dysfunction, and she may well be dysfunctional, um, and how much of the you know ultra criticism I would say could be tied to sexism and racism? Right. So let's talk about really briefly the role of vice president. Right. So number one is to receive assignments and tasks from the president of the United States. Vice president is number two. So that office receives right assignments and tasks. They don't set the agenda. They carry the agenda. They also carry the message. So whenever we hear the message of the administration, be it at a press conference, at a press release, those statements were pre-approved by the president and his administration, and it is carried forth by the vice president. Number two, the role of the vice president is to carry the message. And historically, the role of the vice president was so undefined that each vice president made uh, its role and function his, well, it's been, now we have a her, but his appearance in the public, there was actually no constitutional framework by which the vice president was required to carry aside from being support to the president. And so what we're seeing is in this year, right, is the defining of what is it to be a vice president and the first black woman and Indian descent individual? What does it mean to define after a historic what administration that we saw previously and the divide in the country. What does it mean when actually for the first time that we're seeing Vice President Harris doesn't have more experience than the president? Generally, vice presidents are chosen because they are perceived as doing something the president can't do or can't do very well. So you have two individuals in office that don't have gaps or deficits, and the vice president's role finally is not to overshadow the president. So oftentimes we hear these criticisms that she's not front-facing enough, not loud enough, her communication is not strong enough, but if we actually compare it to the role of vice president, she has to, guess what, dwindle and diminish her appearance and her vocalization in public because that's the function of the vice president is to support the president. Any reporting other than that outside of her role, any reporting, and I've seen reports that say, and they mention over and over again, how historic it is based on her race and her gender, and that this is a weight for her to carry. Okay, that's where the discrepancy and the discrimination comes in. We should be evaluating her job performance, not including her gender and race when looking at the job performance of the Office of Vice President, and that's what needs to be discussed. Well, thank you for clarifying the role of Vice President, because I think a lot of people don't quite realize, and, you know, what all of this dissension and criticism does is indeed undermine her authority and her potential authority should she want to step into that uh, position uh, and responsibility of the president or, or run for president. So, so Harold, as we are uh, looking at, you know, that potential, um, her, her ability to do that, how productive is it to, to have additional conversations about um, the dysfunction of her office. And I really don't understand why you could actually have that, that much dysfunction when you have 
that 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 level of support at that level. Um, yeah, I don't know why she has that level of dysfunction. I don't. I mean, there's no reason that you know Kamala Harris's approval rating shouldn't be 55 percent or 60 percent. We look at people like Condoleezza Rice who didn't have these issues, who wasn't attacked. I mean, she was a black woman in a position of power. She was national security advisor, right? She didn't have, she didn't get to fall back and say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm criticized because I'm a black woman in power. That's not why Kamala Harris is being and criticized. And she hasn't come she out and said that. She hasn't, she, she certainly no, hasn't come and, out and, and said and that. And she hasn't, you're right, she hasn't. But but my, my point is if that, that I don't think that she used that as cover. People that supporting her use that as cover. My, my, I think the issue here is that Kamala Harris has just, not been effective in this job has had issues that that go outside you know outside of her at the border that she hasn't done a good job at and, and I think it's just about that. Well, um, there's a plenty of criticism to go around. The previous administration was certainly dysfunctional, so it doesn't justify additional dysfunction. But there certainly is plenty of criticism to go around, and also just support as well. Harold Eustish, L.A. Whittington, thank you so much for joining us today. I want to thank all of today's guests, and we invite you to engage with us on Twitter or Instagram using the hashtag Black Issues Forum. You can also find our full episodes on pbsnc.org slash Black Issues Forum or listen at any time on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. For Black Issues Forum, I'm Deborah Holt-Noel. Thanks for watching. through the financial contributions of viewers like you who invite you to join them in supporting PBSNC.